And as we continue to kind of explore the history of the church as it's going through, and we've got this wonderful history book here that, that Luke has written for us to understand a little bit about how, how Jesus empowered the apostles to go out and to, to help introduce the gospel message to a world around them. Um, we came to this part in chapter 6, 7, and now 8 where persecution has broken out in the church, and, and it's a tragedy that has happened, but yet it's also a blessing. And, and blessings do come through tragedies. Stephen, who was a deacon of the church, was just stoned to death. They killed him, they drug him outside the city, and they threw rocks upon him until he was dead. It was their way of trying to silence his message that Jesus was the Christ. But here we have in Acts, 2, Acts chapter 8, verse 2, that says that there were some devout men. These are men who are devout to Christ. And, 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 and God, it says they buried Stephen and they made loud lamentations over him. They let everybody know that Stephen was killed and now they were mourning that. But the church's tribulation has just really begun. And it goes on and says a little bit more. It says there in verse 1 that on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Now, of course, Saul, who was from Tarsus, uh, he was one of the ringleaders of this mob that killed Stephen. And he was in the process of persecuting the church with the authority of the Sanhedrin. And so he would go anywhere and everywhere, drag people out of their houses, out of their work environments, drag them through the streets, take them to prison, give them some kind of a, a judicial judgment and punishment as a result of that. Some of them, if they fought, obviously he killed. But there's a problem. We'll discover that in our next chapter. As Saul is on his way to Damascus, he meets Jesus. Not in a way that he had ever thought he would meet Jesus, but he meets Jesus. Now you say, wasn't Jesus supposed to be dead? You'll see. So hang in there. We'll get to that part. And as he meets and encounters Jesus on this road to Damascus, things change in his life. You see, Satan has a plan. We know that he has a plan. His plan is to destroy the world and mankind and against the relationship that they have with God. They, they don't want us to have any kind of knowledge or security in, in him. And so he, he, he does what he can to destroy the church because the church is trying to present this wonderful message that salvation is offered through Jesus to restore the broken relationship that we have with God because of our sin. And so this is great news that we're taking out. And it's, it's this news that the evil in this world does not want to go forth. And so that's what happened here in Acts chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. And he would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered, they went about preaching the word. Satan tries to destroy this infant church, but just like the wind that blows a dandelion across the fields, God scattered a seed of the gospel message everywhere throughout the world. In verse 5 and 8, we see that Philip then is one of those guys who scattered. He goes north out of Jerusalem up into Samaria. He's preaching in Samaria, and people are becoming Christians as a result of his messages. And so they hear about the good news of Jesus Christ, and they surrender to that. And it's fantastic that, that this message is doing these wonderful things. And, and, and Philip has this 
ability that has been God-given that he's able to perform miraculous signs that draws attention to his message. And so people will see that something unique is going on, and as a result of that, let's listen to what he has to say. And in verse 8, it says that there was a lot of rejoicing that went on. World War II, our world is devastated because of persecution, because of violence, because of one man trying to take over. And we look back at World War II and we proclaim that we had a righteous duty to enter into that war. England was in that war to begin with. The British government, they decided they were going to distribute some posters all over England and the United Kingdom to encourage their people. And so these posters went out all over the place, and the first series of posters went out in September of 1939, and it carried this message that said, your courage, your cheerfulness, your resolution will bring us victory. Now, you have to understand, in 39, they did not have all the technology that we have today to communicate through social media, through our phones. through I mean, it, We have revolutionized things. And so posters were very, very important. They took a message that the nation wanted everybody to understand, and they plastered it everywhere they could. And this was the first message that comes out in September of 1939. Listen again. It says, your courage, your fearfulness, your resolution will bring us victory. And as the war got worse, they decided to send out a second poster. And it was released with these words. Freedom is in peril. Defended with all your might. And that was scattered throughout all the countryside and plastered on trains and restaurants and stores and pubs. Anywhere and everywhere they saw these signs. A third poster was created with two and a half million copies, but this third poster was never used because the British government was saving it for an extreme crisis, like an invasion by Germany. That crisis poster was basically lost for 60 years. It was finally found, it was discovered in an auction of old books, just a copy of it. And, and though it was never used during the war, it contained those, those simple words, keep calm and carry on. Once it was found, just at the turn of the century here, you begin to see this message. Keep calm and carry on. Keep calm and do this. Keep calm. We, we've changed it into all kinds of statements. We're trying to bring encouragement to people. It's on, it's on coffee mugs. It's on posters. It's on billboards. It's, it's everywhere plastered, not just in England, but you can see it all around the world. This is a powerful message. When the world is in crisis, England said, when there is an invasion and our freedoms are at stake, keep calm and carry on. I think this is a message that the church received flowing out of Jerusalem as they felt the persecution and the invasion of Satan against the kingdom of God. And he simply says, keep calm and carry on. 
carry on as what the church was doing here in Acts chapter 8. They had faced extreme adversity, and one of their most beloved and one of the most fruitful leaders of their, of their church had been brutally murdered by the high court there of Jews. But the church carried on. Most of the Christians had been uprooted. They'd scattered, and they, 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 they'd lost their homes, and they lost their businesses, and they went wherever the wind carried them. So this morning I'd like for us as a church to begin to understand how we, how we can carry on in the midst of the struggles that we face. First, it's this. We carry on by the preaching of God's Word. First and foremost, His Word has to go forward. And the only way that we can continue to work of God is by preaching. Not, not, not necessarily doing what I'm doing here today, but preaching, which means taking His message, His gospel, the good news of Jesus, and taking and sharing that with other people wherever you go, not wherever I go. See, because the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, it was the churchgoers that went and took the message. So wherever you go, the message of the gospel the God's Word has got to go with you. One reason this was a problem was because there were a lot of false teachers in the church that were starting to jump in. A lot of people had a lot of different ideas. They had not studied underneath uh, Jesus' feet. They did not sit there and listen to Him along the hillsides. They may have heard about Him and heard some things. And, they've heard. and so people wanted to, to tag along and join right in with this movement that was revolutionizing their world. But false teachers got in the way. Our world is still plagued with false teachers today. There are, there are men and women who take the gospel message and they twist it just a little bit to where it sounds good and it's attractive, but it's not quite accurate. Now, in this case, in our story here in the book of Acts chapter 8, there's a man by the name of Simon who has been, he's been leading people astray most of his life, it seems like. So let's listen to what it has to say here, beginning in verse 9, and we'll go through verse 13. Now, there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from the smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him. Because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. At first glance, we might think that, that Simon, Simon's faith is, is one that's just revolutionized who he is. He has just left the, the, the black arts of his, of his trade and his profession, and he's now become a Christian. But I don't think that's really what had happened. Matter of fact, when we begin to look at him, we'll look a little to his history of some of the things he did. He, he's, he's using Christianity for his own benefits a little bit different than what most other people were doing. So we, we go on through our, our story here. And so we've got to look at this, and we see, we think, he, maybe he's, he's here in verse 13, he's, it says he himself believed, and after he was baptized, he continued on with Philip. So it seems like he's become a Christian and things are great. But the rest of the passage will prove that wrong. John Phillips, in his book, 
exploring Acts, he, he has this to, to say, he explains it this way. He says, Simon's faith was spurious or counterfeit from the start. He was not won by Philip's message, but by Philip's miracles. Simon believed, it says, but by Philip's miracles. He believed, but whatever, he was, whatever it was that he believed, it did not regenerate his soul, and he was lost as he believed, as he was before he believed. As a sequel of the story makes clear, Simon deceived Philip. Perhaps he even deceived himself. What Simon coveted was not the master, but the miracles, not the Savior, but the signs. I think those are key words right there. What Simon coveted is not the master, but the miracles, not the Savior, but the signs. You know, I think God's church still faces problems like that today. There are still people out there who are seeking the miracles and the signs, but they're not actually wanting to befriend a relationship with Jesus. They still deny Christ, and they claim that all kinds of evil things in this world that he says we should not do, that those are good and acceptable. But a greater reason for our preaching is the power, really, of God's Word. His truth is, is so powerful. Well, Simon may have been distracted or misguided by, the, by the, the, the signs and the wonders, there were a lot of the Samaritans there that were hearing the words of Philip. They were actually being saved. Men and women alike were being baptized and were giving their lives over to Christ. And that's what it says. But they, they, they believe Philip's preaching and the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, and they were being baptized. And so the church is growing, and many of these Samaritans are saved, and they were saved by the power of God's Word. It is still powerful. Even though Simon didn't quite get it, many other people did. And Paul writes these words in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. See, the message of the cross, there is power in this message, the gospel message, and it brings us salvation. But the gospel message must be preached. Now, the Apostle Paul, he, he strongly affirms this truth in, in Romans chapter 10, verses 6 through 15, when he said this. He said, but the righteousness that is based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? That is, he can bring Christ down to us. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ back up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we're preaching. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Christ raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says that whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same is Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For all, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then, he says, will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, 
How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. No wonder in Acts chapter 8, verse 25, it closes with this passage by saying, So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. See, for people to believe, you have to tell them about Jesus. And just as they were sent out into the world, wherever they went, you are still being sent out into the world. And with you are to take this message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, a salvation not only to the Jewish people, but also to us, the Gentiles, the Greeks. Now, we cannot carry on the work of God's church without preaching God's word. But secondly, we must also have the presence of His Spirit in our lives. I'll tell you what, I thank God that I do. His Spirit is powerful, it's impacting, it changes the manner in which we live and the things that we understand and comprehend, the guidance that we get in the direction of our lives. And, and we have this presence of His Holy Spirit with us today, even the same Spirit that they had back then. But let's look at Acts chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. And there's a different way in this passage that they received the Spirit than they did in other times. Listen to what it says. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard about Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now that scripture reminds us that it's important of touch at least touched within the family of faith. You see, God first touched the Samaritans through the good news about Jesus Christ. And then God touched them through the hands of the apostles. The Samaritans weren't unfamiliar with Jesus. I mean, there's a wonderful story in the book of John, chapter 8, that talks about Jesus spending time at a well while His disciples went into a town. They were walking through Samaria and... Really, Jews don't do that. They tried to avoid it. But Jesus wanted to go through there instinctively because he wanted to have a conversation with a lady at a well. As a result of that conversation, she went into town and she told everybody in town about him. They all came out and they all began to put their faith and their trust in Jesus. They know who this Jesus is. They've heard about him. They've seen him. The uncanniness of his ability to tell them things about themselves and about this woman that they didn't think anybody else knew and now Philip is telling them he's dead, but yet he lives and he has died on the cross and he's risen from the dead so that their salvation can be sure if they simply just put their faith in him and they're baptized into his name, they're going to be saved. They believe. Now in verse 17, Peter and John come. And it says they began laying their hands on them. They're receiving the Holy Spirit. Something going on different in this reception of the Spirit. It's, it's not just the indwelling now of His Spirit, because we know that, that they receive the Spirit upon their baptism, because we're told that that happens, that takes place, but now they're doing things that are similar to what has caught the attention of Simon. They're able to have these miraculous gifts that are going on by the gift of their Spirit, and it's a special time that the, the apostles have here. They, they use this different method at different times according to, to, to God's will. And Jesus does the exact same thing. When He healed people in His ministry here on earth, He did maybe the same type of miracle through different manners. Let's look at a few of them. In Matthew chapter 9, 
If we take blindness as an example, Jesus is in Capernaum up on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee, and, and it's kind of early in his ministry. And Jesus takes these two blind men and he heals them. Listen to what it says in verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be, do, it shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. Did you catch what happened there? They come in and they say, Son of man, have mercy on us. And he, he says, you want to see? Yeah. So he touches them, and they immediately see. And he says, shh, don't let anybody know. Well, you know what they do. They immediately tell everybody, and he has to move on from that area. But now let's move on to another passage over in Mark chapter 8, when Jesus is in his third year of ministry now, and he's, he's in Bethsaida. And it says there in verse 22 of Mark 8, And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see men. For I see them like trees walking around. And then again, he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And later still, now that he's in Jerusalem, he heals another man who was born blind. And that tells us here in John chapter 9, it says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, It was neither this man's sin nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in this world, I am the light of the world. And when he said this, he spat on the ground and he made clay of spittle and he applied it the clay to the man's eyes. And he said to him, Now go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. So he went away and he bathed, he washed, and when he comes back, seeing. Now, Jesus could have healed all these men with the same way. It, it didn't matter. Even, even there was one who had a servant who was dead. He says, Go on back, he's alive. Even though they, they got the message that he was dead, he speaks, and his servant is healed, and he's alive. And, and by just speaking the words in a distance. Jesus could have done the exact same thing, but he chose to do this in a different fashion for each of these men. Why? I don't know. I can't give you an answer. All I know is he has the ability to do it in a variety of ways, and God uses different types of miraculous things in the lives of people, and it depends on who they are and what's going on. Instead of just healing them instantly, he, he does different things with each one. It depends on who we are and what we need in order for us to move forward in our faith. You see, I think there are two crucial reasons why God gave His Holy Spirit here through the laying on of the apostles' hands rather than just any other way. 
First, God wanted to confirm the authority of the apostles. He wanted the people in Samaria to understand that there were apostles in Jerusalem, these men who had traveled with Jesus, that they had specific authority over the church to tell them what to do. Why? Because we don't have the Bible at this time. They can't say, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. They can't say, what does it say in Romans chapter 7? It's not there. We don't even have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John other than the fact that they had seen maybe portions of the life of, of Jesus and his biography, but they need somebody to say, this is what Jesus meant when he said this. This is what God wants us to do when it comes to how we as a church live. And so they need to have the authority of the apostles established, even in Samaria, outside of Jerusalem. Now, the second thing is he also wants to confirm the availability of the gospel. Remember, it was just Jews who were getting the, the gospel message. And so they stayed in Jerusalem, and, and all the Jews were becoming Christians, and then they spread out, and they go out to other areas. Now, this is the first time, we're, we're going to get to Cornelius in a little bit, but this is the first time that Samaritans, and I have to understand the history of Samaria and the Samaritans. When, when the, the nations outside came in and they conquered Israel, they carried off people from their house, and they spread them out in different places to kind of keep them from a revolution and trying to get back to their own nation. Well, the boats who were sent up into this area, as the years went along, those Jewish people in exile, they intermarried with the Canaanites, which God had said don't do. So from the racially pure Jewish person who lives in Jerusalem, the Samaritans are half-breeds. All right? That's their perspective. And they don't belong to the kingdom of God. But when Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, he said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Yay! Judea, yay! And Samaria, oh! And to the ends of the earth. They have been in Jerusalem. They've spread out through Judea. Now they're moving into where? Samaria. Okay, well, we can accept them because they're, they're kind of half-Jewish. But he lays on the hands and they receive the spirits, and it's evident that they, they've received the Spirit of God. Even the Samaritans are becoming Christians. So the question is, do we need to lay hands on people today in order for them to receive the Holy Spirit? No. A.T. Robertson in his, his book, Word Pictures of the New Testament, he explains that the laying on of hands is not seen on the day of Pentecost, there in Acts chapter 2. The, the laying on of hands was also not seen in Acts chapter 10 coming up when Cornelius and his household, the Gentiles, the, the, the Romans, when they become Christians... And it simply says there in Acts 10.44 that while Peter was still speaking his words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening to the message. However, it is mentioned in chapter 9, verse 17, in the story of Paul's conversion, but the apostles are not the ones who were laying their hands on Paul or Saul. Matter of fact, it was a man by the name of Ananias from Damascus who comes and he lays his hands on Saul and Saul receives his sight. Almost 30 years after these events take place here in Acts chapter 8, Paul is now writing the book of Romans. 
And in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, he says this, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. In other words, everyone who belongs to Jesus, when they are born again, they are born with his Spirit indwelling them. We're told in Acts chapter 2, which we read back not too long ago, that when you are you want to be saved, they said, we, we've blown it. We've, we've killed our Messiah. We've destroyed every hope of us having this you know, eternal kingdom. And he said, no, no, no. And they're like, well, what do we need to do? What do we need to do to be saved? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, so that your sins can be forgiven. And you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So if we put our faith in Him and we confess His name and we're baptized into His name, His Spirit then moves in and dwells within our lives. But we've got these special circumstances here when God is trying to convey the importance of how His message and His kingdom goes beyond the walls of just Jerusalem and the Jewish nation into the world. Listen to what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 7. These are Jesus' words. It says, now the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and He cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. He who believes in Me, as the Scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this He spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So today, we don't need to lay our hands on people in order for them to receive the Spirit. Simply put, that everyone who truly believes in Jesus and they're, they're baptized into His name and receive Him as their Savior, they receive the gift of His Spirit in their lives. Now thank God that we don't have to carry on that, the work of, of God's church by going out and preaching and laying on our hands. We simply have to share the message. But thirdly, we must also stand against what I'm going to call the poison of sin. It's going to invade the church. It does. We see it all the time. False teaching that slips in and, and, and it tries to destroy and eat the church out. And, and, and God's church must always stand against it. In our scripture this morning, Peter took a bold stand against sin in, in, his, um, in his confrontation in the ideology of Simon. Well, let's look at this. So 18 through 23. When Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this authority as well, so that, that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. Now back in verse 13, it looked like Simon had become a Christian, right? I mean, he was baptized, he believed, and he followed around with Philip. But remember what John Philip said in his book. What Simon coveted was not the master, but the miracles, not the Savior, but the signs. You know, the Bible strictly forbids us from having anything to do with sorcery or anything that like that. 
such as astrology or horoscopes, fortune telling, uh, psychics, tarot cards, palm reading, seances, Ouija boards, spirit channeling, divinations, enchantments, incantations, witchcrafts, wizardry, charms, spells, or anything that really is invented by the occult world. I can go on and list all these different kinds of things. They're everywhere. They're in your schools. They're in our, our libraries. They're, they're all over the place, finding ways in which we can mess around in this occultic world. Listen to what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 10 through 12, about those within this magical arts. He says, God says, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord, and because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. I want to share with you some research that was done not too long back about the occult and the magic arts here in America. Between the years of 1997 and 2001, four years, Occult book sales in America more than doubled. Colleges and universities today, they offer credited courses on the occult. And over more than 2,000 college campuses, they have known to be set up with computerized technology where you can see your horoscope to make decisions based upon your life and what's going on today. Psychic hotlines they used to be a joke. People used to laugh about them when they came across the TV as commercials and things back then. They were small time. People thought they was funny. It has now become a multi-billion dollar industry a year. And it employs over tens of thousands of people and tens of millions of people use them. Americans today spend over $200 million per year on astrology looking at your horoscopes. Today, there are over 10,000 practicing witches that are registered as witches in America. Americans buy over 2 million Ouija boards a year. And a lot of public schools that outlawed prayer, they now have courses in school that even teach witchcraft. Tell me something. Do you think America needs a revival? It amazes me. It amazes me. Now, there was no doubt about Simon's spiritual condition after the apostles came and had this conversation with him. Verses 18 and 19, it says, Now, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. He said, Give me this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Spirit. But you see, God doesn't sell miracles. And Peter knew that. And so he tells him in verse 20, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. That word perish, sometimes it's translated in our Bibles as the word lost. So in verses 21 to 23, Peter said to Simon, You have no part in this portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, you need to repent of this wickedness of yours. 
and pray that the Lord, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. John Gill, again, in his exposition of the entire Bible, he included this background about Simon. Here's some things that we need to understand. This is not the only time we hear Simon. Maybe in the, in the Bible that's the only time, but Simon was a real man and historically has been documented. All right? <clears throat> he says that there is no reason to believe that Simon truly repented from the accounts given of him by ancient writers. Because these ancient writers, they always represent Simon as an opposer of the apostles and their doctrine, as a father of all heresies and a blasphemous wretch. Simon claimed, while in Samaria, that he was the father. That he was in Judea, he said he was the son of God. And in other places, he often referred to himself as the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost. He's a very wicked man. And he worked with a prostitute that he claimed was the mother of the universe who created the angels. Now this is historical information. This man Simon, he saw what was going on with the ability of Philip and now the ability of Peter and John, and he says, I want that ability. He never surrendered himself to fully understand the grace that was offered. And after this point, he becomes an enemy of the church. And it distorts the church and the message by trying to proclaim that he is the Father, that he is the Son, that he is the Holy Spirit, that he is God in the flesh by his magical arts. See, Simon, Simon shows us the poison of sin, and we've got to stand against it. The fourth thing is this. We must take a stand against not only the poison of sin, but we also must be praying for people's salvation. That's the last thing I want you to know. What can we do for people in Simon's condition? Well, he says it himself in verse 24. He says, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So how do we pray about it? Well, we pray that lost people will turn from their wickedness. That's what Peter said. We pray that they will seek the Lord for forgiveness. Peter said that as well. And we pray that they will be set free from the bitterness of sin that is in their life. Charles Spurgeon, Matthew, if you have picking up, he was pastoring at the age of 16 in, in England. By the time he was 25, he led his church to build a 5,000 seat auditorium. But it was too small. And so he had to utilize other venues for his church services, because often he would have over 10,000 people on a Sunday morning listening to him speak. He preached all over Europe as well, became a famous, famous preacher. At the same time, there was a great circus builder that was very prominent here in America, a man by the name of P.T. Barnum. We just had that wonderful movie that came out, you know, The Greatest Showman. Well, P.T. Barnum, he heard about Spurgeon, he was growing these great crowds and, and they were coming to hear him, so he sent a telegram to Charles Spurgeon with an offer of a large sum of money 
to come and preach in his circus tents. And of course, he would charge a fee for the people to come in and hear Spurgeon preach. So Spurgeon sent back a short reply telegram. He said, Dear Mr. Barnum, you'll find my my answer in Acts 8.20. (laughs) Wouldn't you like to have been there when Barnum opens up the Bible and looks through Acts chapter 8, verse 20, and finds that it says, uh, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money? The greatest showman. Money can buy a lot of things, but it cannot buy salvation. See, God touched people's lives in miraculous ways, and by His grace, God has even touched our lives today. He wants us to carry on and do the good work of His kingdom by preaching God's Word by the presence of His Holy Spirit in our lives, impacting other people's lives, and standing against the poison of sin, and praying for the lost. And I pray that God helps us as a church to carry on, to take the message wherever we go. We're going to have an invitation for you. Let's stand together.